And if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, uh, that is page 473 in the church Bibles. And this evening we're just going to be in chapter 1. Well, on the screen, uh, there is a picture of something which may not be familiar to all of you, but may be familiar to some of you. It would be familiar, perhaps, if you visited room 51 in the British Museum. For in that room in the British Museum, which is where they store uh, artifacts from Iran, is what is called the Cyrus Cylinder. And the Cyrus Cylinder contains writing that was written in about 538 BC. It was found in 1879 by a man called uh, Hormuzd Rassam, but he was funded by the British Museum, which is why it is housed in that place in room 51. Why is it important for tonight? Well, it's important because it contains a declaration by King Cyrus, who we read about in Ezra chapter 1. It describes how he defeated the Babylonians in 539 BC, and how he allowed the exiles whom Babylon had taken away from their homes to return home with the treasures from their temples so that they could worship their own gods and pray to them on Cyrus's behalf. The Jewish people are not specifically mentioned on this particular cylinder, but the impact that this had on them is described in Ezra chapter 1. And in Ezra chapter 1, we read about the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. And the book of Ezra is about that return how they returned from being in exile in Babylon to going back to Jerusalem. How when they went back, they rebuilt the temple and how they restored the law of Moses in the land. And this pictures for us as New Testament Christians, our coming home from exile in sin into the kingdom of God and ultimately to our heavenly home that God has in store for us. In order to understand this book, we need to understand a little bit of the history of Israel. And so I'll briefly explain uh, where this book fits into that history. Before uh, King Cyrus had conquered Babylon, the people of God lived there in exile. And this was a strange thing because the people of God, many uh, years before, about 1500 years before, had been promised that they would be a great nation in a great land that would be a blessing to all people. Abraham had been promised those three things. He would be a great nation, he would have a land, and they would be a blessing to all nations. And that promise seemed to be in the ashes as his people were no longer a great nation, no longer in a land, and they were exiled in a foreign land, in a foreign empire, 
in Babylon. As we've looked at the nation of Israel in the morning with King David, we see that promise to Abraham being partially fulfilled at a certain point in their history. It continued to be partially fulfilled when King Solomon was king, and they blessed nations from all over the world. But after King David and King Solomon, Israel started on a downward trajectory. King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was not a good king, and he was not a wise king. He was advised by the people that had helped serve King Solomon to let the burden on the people be reduced. But rather than listen to that wise counsel, he went to the younger friends that he had, who all told him to increase the burden on the people, to tax them more, to push them harder, to be greater than his father. Well, this led to a rebellion, and the kingdom was split into two. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them rebelled, and formed a northern kingdom called Israel. And the tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained in the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. In the northern kingdom, they had their own king, but all of their kings were evil and did not follow God. And God judged them after warning them again and again through prophets. And in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. In the south, things were a little better. Some of their kings were good, but most of them were bad. And they also rebelled against God. And in uh, the time of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who destroyed the Assyrian Empire, he came and Israel, uh, Judah rather, was judged. He came in three different stages. In the first stage, in 605 BC, he took away the best of the land, the best people of the land, and deported them to Babylon. And Daniel was one of those. But in the end, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar had had enough of the rebellion of Judah, and he destroyed the temple. And he took people into exile, and he only left behind those who were poor and weak, and who couldn't cause any problems for him at all. And this was a disaster for God's people. The great temple of Solomon, where they worshipped God, was completely destroyed. But in the midst of this terrible time, God offered hope to his people. And the prophet Jeremiah is a key person at this point in their history. He prophesied during this time and he saw Nebuchadnezzar destroy Israel. He was not listened to. He was abused. But he said Israel would go into captivity for 70 years, but God would bring them back. I'll put the verses on the screen, but if you want to turn to them, you can. But look at Jeremiah chapter 25 and verses 11 and 12. This is what these verses say. This is Jeremiah offering hope to the people at this distressing time. God is speaking through him. He says, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate 
forever. If you turn a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 29 and from verse 10 onwards, Jeremiah continues with this message of hope. This is what he says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God says here that there will be 70 years of exile, but this is his part, part of his good plans for his people, which will end with them being back in Jerusalem. Uh, by, uh, in, incidentally, many people use verse 10 about having uh, been prospering and having a future and a hope as being a, a prosperity right here and now. But look at the context. God says, no, 70 years, a whole lifetime, perhaps, before God's good plans are fulfilled and that future and that hope is realized. The promise is future. And as we come to Ezra... We come to the end of that 70 years of exile. And we see how the Lord is sovereign over history to fulfill his plans and his promises. If you look at Ezra chapter 1, if you look at verses 1 and verse 5, you see the key phrase in this passage. And the phrase is this, the Lord moved the heart. The Lord moved the heart. And in Ezra, we see that throughout history, the Lord moves. The Lord moves. If we look at the book of Ezra as a whole, there are three major sections. In the first section, in chapters 1 and 2, we see the people return to the land. In verses 3 and 6, we, uh, chapters 3 to 6, sorry, we see the people rebuild the temple. And in chapter 7 to 10, we see the people restore the law. So there's the return to the land, the rebuilding of the temple, and the restoring of the law. And as we uh, title the book of Ezra, I've titled it Return, Rebuild, Restore. And we'll see that how that applies to us. So let's read Ezra chapter 1 and see how God enables his people to return home. So I'm going to start at verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, 
the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them bought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the infantry, gold dishes, 30, silver dishes, 1,000, silver pans, 29, gold bowls, 30, matching silver bowls, 410, other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar bought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the word of God. In this chapter, we see God moving in history and how he moves, first of all, to keep his promise. Secondly, he moves to enable his people. And thirdly, he moves to protect true worship. So first of all, God moves to keep his promise. The Cyrus Cylinder was written by Cyrus, but here we see that the Cyrus Cylinder was inspired by God himself. First of all, King Cyrus, it says in verse 1, in his first year, which was 538 BC, had his heart moved by God. It says that God moved the heart of King Cyrus to make this proclamation. And the text says here that it was in order to fulfill the word from Jeremiah. And we saw what those words from Jeremiah were. But also, and equally I find amazing, we see that God is fulfilling a word also from Isaiah. Isaiah was written 150 years before King Cyrus was even born. And in chapter 44 and 45 of Isaiah, we read some amazing words about King Cyrus. His name is mentioned in these verses. I'm going to read to you uh, just one bit, just one verse to start with. Isaiah 44 and verse 28. This is God speaking. Let me read what Isaiah 44 and verse 28 says. It starts with these words. Who says of Cyrus. Cyrus, his name. His name is mentioned 150 years before. And this is what God says about Cyrus. He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundation be laid. 150 years before he was even born, he is named and God says he is my shepherd. He will do what I please. 
King Cyrus, the king of the greatest empire in the world, was a shepherd in the hands of God. Isn't it amazing? It's awesome, isn't it, to think? In Isaiah 45, God talks more of how Cyrus is anointed, how Cyrus will destroy Babylon, how Cyrus will be enabled by God for his rise to power to become the most powerful man on earth. Cyrus went within 20 years from being the king of a small state uh, by the name of Anshan, which was nothing really, to being a world conqueror. He conquered all the nations in his wake, including in the end Babylon, and within 20 years was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. It was a remarkable rise to power. It's recorded in the British Museum, but it was by the hand of God, written 150 years before he was born. Cyrus, an instrument in our God's hands. He moves through history, and why? So that he could keep the promise he made to his people that they would return from exile in Babylon. Before Cyrus came, he was aided by the disarray within the Babylonian royal family. In that family, there were rebellions, there were murders, there were switching of gods, all sorts of things. It seemed utter chaos. But in the midst of this chaos in Babylon, God was at work to make the path clear for Cyrus to come and conquer. Isn't it amazing that we can look even in times of utter chaos in our world and remember that our God is in absolute control. And in verses 2 and 3, Cyrus makes this proclamation. The proclamation would be shouted by heralds in the principal towns of the empire. And it says it was recorded, it was put in writing, and we saw the picture of that on the screen at the beginning, on the Cyrus Cylinder. This is a sure and certain promise by the king for God's people. But although it's written by King Cyrus, really we see that it's from our king, from God. Look again at this proclamation in verses 2 and 3. This is what the Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Notice he says here what God said in Isaiah. That God would give him the kingdoms of the earth. That God would appoint him to build a temple. And the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus so that the people could go home. It sounds like in these verses, doesn't it, that Cyrus is a follower of Yahweh. But it's unlikely that that's true. The Cyrus cylinder tells us that actually Cyrus uh, was a follower of Marduk, the, the, the god of Babylon. The declaration here was most likely signed by Cyrus out of diplomatic courtesy, but written by the Jewish people. But nevertheless, Cyrus put this in place. The Jewish people were allowed to go home 
and build the temple just like Jeremiah promised that they would. This proclamation fulfills those scriptures. This proclamation tells us that Cyrus, as he was told he would in Isaiah, was appointed to rebuild the temple and allow the people to return home. This declaration tells us that God was was keeping his promises to Abraham of being a nation in a land. The people were going back. The nation was going back to the land. And God providentially moved in history, moved the heart of kings so that this could happen. I wonder, do you ever feel as though God cannot be anywhere in the midst of your situation? Do you ever feel that God isn't anywhere in the midst of the world situation? Do you feel as though God isn't sovereign over ISIS or over Christians in North Korea and Iraq and in Saudi Arabia and across the Muslim world where they are persecuted for their faith? Even in these situations, God is working his purposes out. We should allow this passage to be like a pair of glasses we put on as we watch the news, to remind us that God is in control in all the situations that we see on the television. He is the real king. Remember how Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, in that chapter that tells us of the sovereignty of God, Paul writes that God is working everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. When we saw the Lord's Prayer, we looked at the the petition, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And I, I used an illustration there of how God has a bird's eye view, how he sees everything from the beginning to the end, and how we can only see what's directly in front of us. And God has a grand plan, a big plan, and he's working everything out from the beginning and the, to the end to fulfill his good and perfect purposes. And Ezra chapter 1 tells us, shows us a glimpse in history of how God does that. And he does that for the benefit of his people And he is doing that for the benefit of his people even today. Even in the midst of of chaos, when we can't see how, God is working his purposes out. And the verses in Romans chapter 8 are true, that God does work for the good to those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We see this is true. As we struggle and as we suffer, we must remember that we worship the God who has the big picture, who knows everything from the beginning to the end and has great promises for his people that we must cling to in the midst of that suffering. In exile, God's people did cling to the promise of the return. In Daniel chapter 9, we read of how Daniel prayed because he knew this 70 years was up. He had hope in the midst of turmoil. And we must cling to those promises of our eternal home in heaven when we are in the midst of fiery trials. 
There are correlations with this book, with the book of Exodus. In fact, some people even call these chapters the second Exodus. In the book of Exodus, just like God moved in the hearts of King Cyrus in a different kind of way, he moved the empire of Egypt so that God's people could be removed from exile in Egypt into the promised land of Israel, where they established the law, where they built the temple. And like Exodus, this pictures for us how God takes us from exile here and bringing us home to eternal glory in heaven. I've been reading a book recently on the, the, some of the soldiers in the Second World War. And a lot of them had to live in the most dis, dis, horrible conditions. They were in, in, in freezing cold often. In, well, I was reading about the ones in Russia. Freezing cold. Nothing to eat. And all they could think about, apart from food, was going home. They were looking forward to going home. If you go to visit somebody in hospital, the one thing they want more than anything else, isn't it, is to, to go home. I've, uh, over this last year, have the privilege of being with Christians who are dying. And when Christians are facing death, there is such hope, isn't there? Because they're going home. Brothers and sisters, we are not home yet, but God's word promises that one day we will be. You know, the number of years in exile was 70 years. And in the Bible, 70 years is an average lifespan. And some Christians have to suffer their whole lives before they know and see the promises of God fulfilled. But in the midst of even the whole of our lives of suffering, we must hold on to the hope of the gospel so that we look forward to what God has for us and we can look back to how God has worked in history, even moving the hearts of kings to fulfill his purposes. But God does move in history to fulfill his promises. So as we look back, we see him fulfilling his promises, but also we see God moving through history to enable his people. There's different ways in this passage that God enables his people to serve him. When God sends his people home, he doesn't just send them home to do nothing. When God brings us from exile in sin into his kingdom, he doesn't save us so we can do nothing. He saves us to serve him. The first way that God enabled his people, we've already seen. The first way is the permission of the king. But we see, as well as the permission of the king, three other ways that God enables his people to return home and serve him. The second way is the provision of resources. The provision of resources. Look at, the, uh, look at verse 4, this, the, at the end of the proclamation. God, say, God says through Cyrus here, and in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. 
This declaration goes further than just saying, okay, you can go home. This declaration says that, God, uh, that the people have to provide the resources for the people to settle in that home. The survivors here are the Jewish exiles that are already in exile but not going home. They don't have to go. There's a choice, but they do have to give. They had no choice in giving. And it was like a tax that Cyrus put on the people to give. It's an amazing, uh, just an amazing declaration in that it just seems to, to get better and better for those going back. They don't just have the permission of the king, but they're given everything that they need. They're given money, they're given goods, they're given animals to, to use for livestock and for sacrificing. And they're even given free will offerings on top of what they're already given, more than they possibly need in order to go back to Jerusalem. So they're given the permission of the king, the provision of resources. But thirdly, in verse 5, we see they're given the movement of the heart. The movement of the heart. It says the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Judah and Benjamin, they were the tribes from the southern kingdom that were taken over by Babylon. It seems the other ten tribes were wiped out. We'll see a little bit of them later in the book. But also, God preserved priests and Levites so that the religious life of the nation could continue. Now, Israel was going to never be again a political kingdom with their own king, but they were a religious kingdom. They were enabled to worship God in the temple. And so they were provided with priests who were responsible for the temple worship and with Levites who were responsible for teaching the law. But those that left were those that God's heart had moved. God had moved the heart of King Cyrus to give the declaration and here he moves the heart of his people so that they could go and serve him in Jerusalem. Notice that God didn't move every heart. And some people think that this is uh, a sign that some were sinful in staying behind. But I don't believe that's the case. That Daniel was an example of a man that stayed behind and served God in Babylon. It was those whose hearts God had moved that went back. It's not sinful to stay, but it is true that perhaps some should have gone, but rather they stayed in the comfort of Babylon. And the stirring of the heart was that they would go to rebuild the temple in verse 5. That they would go and rebuild. It wasn't just to, to go back on an adventure. It was to go and serve God with a purpose. And isn't there a need for God to move the hearts of his church today? Isn't there a need for God to stir our hearts to enable us to serve him in proclaiming his kingdom? Now, some of you may say, well, God's not moved my heart, so I don't need to serve him. Well, this isn't so. That's not the case. 
God may not move your heart for a specific purpose, such as leaving home and going abroad to serve him, perhaps. But if you don't feel any movement of your heart to serve God, then there is a serious spiritual problem. And you need to plead with God to move your heart. In fact, in my own life, if I'm not stirred when I read the wonderful things of Scripture, I know that there is a problem. If my heart is cold and not moved, I need to get on my knees and pray with God and plead with him to move my heart. And we need to pray that God would work in history in our day, in the hearts of his people, to enable them to serve him effectively, that many would come to know Jesus. Oh, how we need God to move our hearts to serve him. And that prayer begins with praying that God would work in our own hearts personally and being prepared to move ourselves. So they were enabled through the permission of the king, through the provision of the people, through the movement of the heart. And in verse 6, it's the, they're enabled by the favor of the neighbors. The favor of the neighbors. The extent of this enablement of God is staggering. It's quite breathtaking if you think about it. Every barrier is broken down so that the people could go back. Even the neighbors, which throughout history have always been against Israel, the neighbors want to give them money to go back. Again, this this verse links us back to the Exodus where in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 35, the Egyptians were so keen for the people to go that they would give them money and clothing as they left. And in this second Exodus, the neighbors, for a different reason, are able to help the people go and build the temple. Look at verse 6. All the neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. This isn't necessarily just the Jews that were being taxed. This is the neighbors just freely, it seems, giving to the people, enabling them to go. It's It's breathtaking to think of how God enables his people here. He makes it so... Uh, easy for them just to go. Every barrier, if they were to come up with excuses not to go, every excuse is broken down as God moves their hearts. And brothers and sisters, if God moves the heart, God prepares the way. If he moves our hearts, he prepares the way. One of the favorite stories in our family is the, the story of Brother Andrew, God's smuggler. And as you read uh, the book of, of Brother Andrew, uh, it's, just, it's amazing how God prepares the way for him to go into communist countries taking Bibles. We saw that he, he drives a, a car that practically ran on sawdust for thousands of miles and it didn't break down. And when he arrived, they couldn't believe it. We saw how God provided him with money from nowhere. We saw how, how God closed the eyes of those that were looking in the car where he had Bibles on the back seats and they let him through. As God moved Brother Andrew's heart to take Bibles where Bibles weren't, he prepared the way so that he could go and do that work. As God moves our hearts, God prepares the way. And I would encourage you to read 
God's Smuggler, if you haven't read it. It's a great book, um, and you can borrow my copy if you want. Uh, But there's other great stories uh, of Christian history that you can read uh, of how God prepares the way for those whose heart he's moved to serve him. And God calls us in different ways. We're not all called to go and leave our homes on overseas mission, but he does call everyone to local church service. And when God does call you to do something, he always provides what is needed to do the work. He provides us with the time that we can use for him. Sometimes we may have to give up something else to serve him in the church, but he does provide the time. He provides us with money so we can give to the church and to mission to enable others. He provides us with abilities so that we can use them in the body of Christ. He provides us with confirmation that we're doing the right thing through circumstances. He provides us with people to work alongside and encourage us in the work that we're doing and other people to confirm that what we're doing is right. But most of all, he provides us with the spiritual power that we need to accomplish the work he has given us to do. And this means that we can do some things that we thought would never be possible for us because if God moves our hearts, God prepares the way. So let us be bold in our service. Let us do things that perhaps we think we could never do if God is moving our heart to do so. And even this morning, let me do another plug again. We need people for welcoming. We need people for communion. Let us do those things with hearts that God has stirred to do so for his glory. Some Jews had to go. Some Jews had to give. But all of us, in some way, need to serve God. None of us are called to do nothing in God's kingdom. The Jewish nation was called to build the temple, and the church is called to be involved in building the kingdom of God. So, brothers and sisters, let us get involved in serving him. So God moves in history to keep his promises. He moves in history to enable his people, and finally... God moves in history to protect true worship. A key theme in the book of Ezra is the continuity of worship of God's people from before the exile to after the exile. And this is shown by the importance of building the temple and proving in chapter 2 where you descended from. And this was to ensure that the worship of God was kept pure. The reason that they were in exile was because they had not worshipped God as they ought to have. They had worshipped other gods. And there is a real keenness to show that they worship God right as they come back from exile. They don't want it to happen again. And so they want to get it right. And so verses 7 to 11, we see this strange list of pots and pans that are brought back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Why is it there? It's to show that the worship of God can continue because the temple articles are being brought back. Let me read you those verses again. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them bought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the infantry, 
Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar bought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. It wasn't just the people that had been in exile. So too were the objects of temple worship. While they were in exile, the people had been unable to worship God as prescribed in the law. There was no place for them to sacrifice, no place for them to make atonement because the temple was gone. This was a travesty for the people of God. They longed to be home. They longed for their temple. They longed to be able to atone for sin. Remember, we don't need a physical temple because we look back to the cross where the once and for all sacrifice had been made. But Jesus had not yet come. The sacrifices for sin were made at the temple of God and the people longed for it to be rebuilt. And God makes sure that they have what was needed to worship him when the temple was rebuilt. Notice the care that has gone into this. The, the, the articles were counted out for the people of God. And given to Sheshbazar, the man who was probably the first governor of Judah. He wasn't, as uh, it says here, the prince of Judah. The, the word for prince can also be translated governor. He, he was the leader of the people of God. And this infantry was made. Again, God is fulfilling the promise from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58 and verses 11 and 12 read like this. It says, Depart, depart, go out from there, that is Babylon, touch, come out from it and be pure, you who carry the articles of the Lord's house. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, the God of Israel will be your rear guard. They would not run in haste, they would not flee away, they would not have a smash and grab in the Babylon temple and take the stuff back. They were given it, it was counted out so that they could take the articles back to Jerusalem. God protects true worship. What is true worship? Worship is based on God's word. That is what true worship is. True worship is worship based on following God's word. And in the Old Testament, God's word said that the people were to make sacrifices in the temple to make atonement for sin. But in the New Testament, God's people looked to the sacrifice of Jesus to atone for sin. And the point of the list is this. Not that we need to go to some place and buy all these articles and put them in our homes the point is this, that God protects what is necessary to worship him. That is why no matter how bad the world gets, there will always be a church, just as there always have been. In the Old Testament, there are times when only a few continue to worship God, but there has always been a remnant, always been a few. In the time in church history, if you look back to the time of the Reformation, it seemed that there was nobody that worshipped God according to his word. But God brought true worship based on scripture alone, back from what seemed like the dead. He protected true worship. 
And no matter how bad the world gets, always somewhere will be those that worship God according to his word. But let's look at this little bit more personally. Although we do not use bowls and pans to worship God today, God does give us our Bibles. He does give us prayer. He does give us church. He does give us communion. He does give us singing. He gives us other means of grace to worship him. And the question I would ask from this section is this. Are some of those things in exile for you at the moment? Is your Bible in exile somewhere on the bookshelf gathering dust? Is your prayer life somewhere in exile in the distant past or, more likely, in the ever near future? Something you'll get round to sorting out. Is your church attendance a bit hit and miss? Perhaps we need to bring some of these things back from exile and back into where they should be in our lives. But at the same time, we should use all of what we have and all of what we are for the worship of God, even our pots and pans as we serve him through serving others. So our money and our time and our abilities all need to perhaps be brought from exile into the kingdom of God and worshipping him and serving him as our king. Perhaps you have used your possessions to worship yourself or other people or some other God and they've been stuck in that temple and like these articles here need to be brought back into serving God. The Lord moves powerfully in Ezra chapter 1 and we see him moving powerfully all through this book. But he is the God who moves in history to fulfill his purposes. He moves in history to keep his promises so we should trust him in all of our circumstances. He's the God who moves in history to enable his people so we should serve him with confidence in the church. And he's the God who moves in history to protect true worship. So let's worship him through following his word. And let us pray that in our day, in our nation, in our village, and primarily at first in our church, that the Lord of history would move our hearts and stir them up to serve him. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are the God of history, that you move in history to fulfill your good and perfect plans. O oh Lord our God, would you stir our hearts to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to close with a song which sings uh, or says uh, of God working through history. Uh, we're going to stand and sing God of the Ages.